Three out of the four Gospels record a moment when Jesus is asked about the fasting habits of his disciples compared to the disciples of the Pharisees and John the Baptist. Specifically, he's asked, why don't your disciples fast when their disciples do? Jesus answers by giving three weird metaphors without any kind of explanation or commentary. First, he says, the guests at a wedding don't fast while the bridegroom is present. They'll fast after he's taken away. Then he says, nobody takes a piece of unshrunk cloth and sews it onto an old garment. Otherwise, it'll tear away and leave an even bigger hole than was there before. And then, third and, and most perplexingly to our modern ears, he says this. He says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. When Moses describes the promised land in the book of Deuteronomy, he talks about its wealth and bounty by talking about seven specific crops that grow there. He talks about wheat, barley, grapes, dates, pomegranates, olives, and figs. And right in the middle of that list is the grape, a crop of unbelievable significance to the entire ancient Near East and the entire world. The grape was grown all over Israel. You would have seen vineyards covering the terraced hillsides of the entire land in the ancient world. And they were used for a variety of purposes. You could eat them plain, you could dry them and turn them into raisins, or most commonly, you could make wine. And wine was a very precious thing in the ancient world because the available water most of the year wasn't entirely safe to drink. It might make you sick. And let's face it, if, if we have a choice between warm goat's milk or stagnant water that might make you sick or a glass of wine, you're going to pick the wine. But for the Israelite, wine had a deep religious spiritual significance as well. It was central to a number of the feasts that took place in ancient Israel, everything from Passover to the Day of Atonement and others. And it was even one of the precious commodities that was offered to God as a regular sacrifice. Wine is a changing, growing, transforming, living thing that has within it the potential to go from a fruit to something spectacularly different given just time and care. And so it shouldn't surprise us to find all over the Bible metaphors and images that relate to wine making and wine. And many of them, even to us as modern people, are pretty intuitive. I mean, wine is a part of our lives. We've been making it as human beings for thousands of years. And here in the South Bay, especially, you can't go anywhere without driving past a vineyard like this one. So when we read in the Bible, Jesus describing himself as a vine and saying that we are branches that have to stay connected to him in order to bear fruit, that image makes sense to us. Or when the prophets say that God is going to give the nations a cup of his wrath to drink that will make them stagger as though they were drunk. That image, again, makes sense to us. Or when the prophets talk about how in the future, new creation is going to be a place where the mountains drip sweet wine. We get it. But at the same time, in the ancient world, wine and winemaking was very different than it is today. And so some images, like Jesus' bursting wineskin, don't resonate, don't make sense. And so in order for us to fully understand them, we have to do the work of looking into what it was like to make and drink wine in the ancient world. Chances are, when you think about wine, you picture something like this. Now, for Jesus' hearers, it would have been more intuitive to picture something like this, only probably quite a bit larger. In the modern world, the wine that we drink is, for the most part, a finished product by the time it's in the bottle. 
These grapes that are growing around me right now are going to be picked, sorted, and pressed using a ton of helpful modern technology, and it'll then be transferred to barrels and stainless steel vats for fermentation and aging. And by the time it gets into that bottle and put on the shelf of a store, it's ready for you to drink. Now, in the ancient world, there was a ton of overlap with that. Everything, of course, was done by hand, all the harvesting and sorting, and a lot of the pressing was actually done by foot, by people stepping on the grapes. And then it would end up in larger vats for the first part of fermentation, but after that, it would be transferred either to clay jars or large animal skins. And that's where things get interesting. Fermentation is the process by which yeast consumes the naturally occurring sugars in the grapes and turns it into alcohol. It's this amazing process where the living potential within the grape interacts with the living yeast in its environment to create something entirely new. The problem is, a byproduct of that process is tons and tons of carbon dioxide gas, and if that's not managed properly, it can cause huge problems. Now, I'm a kind of a novice home fermenter myself. I don't make wine, but I make sauerkraut and kombucha and yogurt and things like that, and I usually use mason jars. Now, if I were to make sauerkraut in a mason jar like this with a sealed lid, that process, which is just cabbage and salt, would build up so much gas that eventually this jar would explode, sending shards of glass and cabbage all over the place. It would ruin the product, ruin the vessel, and be dangerous. And so what I have to do is what every other home fermenter does. I use specialized lids like this that can release that gas before it gets to a dangerous level, or I cover it with cheesecloth or something like that in order to protect the product. And you have the same exact problem with winemaking. If you don't find a way to let those gases release, you're eventually going to destroy the vessel they're in and destroy the wine that you're trying to make. In ancient winemaking, one of the preferred ways of dealing with that gas buildup was to let wine ferment inside of animal skins. And in ancient Israel, what they would do is they would take a whole goat skin and fill it with the wine. And as it would ferment inside of that goat skin, sewn up, the wine would force its way out of every available opening. And while it did that, it would push its way into every nook and cranny, stretching and reshaping that skin into a completely new shape. Animal skins only had the capacity to do that one time though. After that initial fermentation, that wine would be drank and that wineskin would be retired because if you were to put new wine inside of that wineskin, the leather would no longer have the necessary give to move and accommodate those expanding gases. What would happen if you tried that is exactly what Jesus said. The wineskin would burst, the wine would go everywhere and the wineskin and the wine would be ruined. So here's the point. When Jesus says no one puts new wine into old wineskins, he's not saying some obscure, esoteric, hard to understand metaphor. It's an incredibly accessible, obvious metaphor to his audience. What he's saying is no one would try to do that. And anyone who tried to do that would be doing something foolish and dangerous. He's saying that the wine of the gospel cannot be poured into the old wineskins of his hearers' worldview. The wine of the kingdom of God, the new wine that Jesus is ushering in through his life, death, and resurrection, it's bubbling and brimming over with life. It's fermenting. And if you try to put it into the old wineskins of his hearers' pre-existing ideology, it's going to be destroyed. And if that's true of first century Pharisaic Judaism, how much more true is it of us in the modern Western world? The gospel is alive. It's brimming over with life and energy, and it requires a brand new vessel. It will not be forced into a different shape. It requires something brand new, ready to be reshaped by it. 
So you and I, we can't have our preferred favorite ideologies, our favorite political party, our favorite agendas, our favorite ways of looking at the world, pursuits of material goods and comfort and wealth and security. We can't have those things be primary and expect to just pour Jesus into them as an addition. The King of heaven and earth will not just be a little add-on or an augmentation to your pre-existing view of the world, your pre-existing ideas and ideals. He wants to be the shaper of them. And so we're in a difficult spot as people because not only do we need new wine, we need new wineskins for them to be put into. Because any old wineskin that we try to put Jesus into is going to either be filled up with a fake version of the gospel, some kind of lifeless, inert grape juice that can't possibly have the capacity to change and reshape us. Or if we try to put the real gospel in, Jesus says it will explode that vessel, leaving us empty-handed. If we want to be reshaped by the gospel, we need new wineskins. So now that you know what Jesus and his audience would have pictured, I want you to imagine what your internal wineskin would look like. Do you have a set of values and a worldview that resemble an old wineskin? Are they fully and permanently formed, stretched to the breaking point, incapable of accommodating the new growth and reshaping that's required by the gospel? So let's face it, all of us on our own are bloated vessels incapable of holding the new wine of the gospel. We need to be given new wineskins. The good news is that this is exactly what Jesus came to bring us. In fact, hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah had identified that the problem with God's people was not just a mere behavior problem or belief problem, but a heart problem. And God's solution to that was not going to be to just fine tune or adjust their old hearts in some way, but to provide new ones for them. And so they said things like this from Ezekiel chapter 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. See, when Jesus came, humanity didn't need a new teaching or a new system of belief or a new moral code to adhere to. We needed new hearts. We didn't just need the gospel message, we needed new vessels that would be capable of containing them. And that's why Paul, when he talks about Christians, he doesn't describe us as people who are just adherents of a new faith or adherents of a new belief system. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So what does this mean for you and me? It means that the gospel must be primary. We can't allow our other beliefs and ideals to shape the gospel. We have to allow the gospel, that new wine, to be the very thing that shapes all of our other ideas and ideals. And so the good news of Jesus Christ is that you don't have to do something to make that happen. You don't have to work hard enough or believe hard enough to achieve that. You just accept by faith the free gift of God that is both wine and wineskin, a new vessel filled up with the gospel that allows that bubbling life to push its way into every nook and cranny and reshape us into the vessels that we were meant to be.